Uh, the rest of us will be in the book of Colossians. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, there are uh, Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. And on page 572, you'll find a book in the New Testament called uh, Colossians. Lord willing, uh, we'll be here in this book until uh, mid-August. And like we do most times when we start a new book, we, we pick up some of those um, scripture journals. So they're half a page is the text of the Bible, the other half is a section for notes, and it's a little short, tiny book. There are some of those in the back at the coffee bar if you want that. They're $5 just to recover the cost. Feel free to grab one on your way out. It's a great way to take notes as we work our way through a book. Um, if you're new to the Bible, uh, thank you for being here. What a gift that you would come and spend the morning with us. Um, you'll be helped to know that Christians are people who believe that the Bible is God's primary way of communicating to us today. And so when we open the Scriptures then he uses what he wrote in order to tell us all that we need to know for life and godliness. And so as a church, what we do every Sunday is what every other church that seeks to live faithfully according to the Scriptures does. We open the Bible together and we try to listen as God uh, speaks. Uh, we'll do that today beginning in a new little book called uh, Colossians. If, uh, if you're not a Christian, then one thing that might be uh, interesting for you to consider is that the main difference between Christians and non-Christians is not what kind of family we're from or how much of the Bible that we've learned so far or how many bad habits we've stopped. Uh, the, the main difference between Christians and non-Christians is that Christians are people who believe God speaks in His Word and that what he says is good and right and true, and that he's in charge. And so we try to listen and submit ourselves to him. A non-Christian is somebody who lives by their own word and thinks they know what's best. That is essentially the main difference between Christians and non-Christians. As we read the Bible together, both Christian and non-Christian, we'll at times be challenged at other times we'll be comforted, um, and at times we'll disagree with what we see, and other times we'll agree. And in that process, that's God speaking to us and drawing us closer and closer uh, to Him. Now, if uh, you're wondering this morning why the book of Colossians, well, a few comments uh, about that. The Bible's got a whole bunch of books in it. It's, it's really a library. There's 66 different books, so how do we decide what we're going to look at uh, together? Well, our, our habit is to jump from a New Testament book to an Old Testament book back to a New Testament book, and then to change the kind of literature that we're looking at each time. The reason for that is God has spoken in lots of different ways, and different ones of us hear different kinds of literature more or less effectively. And so God in His wisdom has given us variety, as much variety as, as we are. And we've chosen to go to Colossians this time because some of the things we learned together in Daniel, the last book we studied, are going to be directly building in the book of Colossians. And so things we began learning about in Daniel will give more specificity in the book of Colossians. You might think of it as as picking up a camera with a lens 
And what we saw in Daniel that was a little fuzzy will bring into sharper focus as we look at the book of Daniel. For example, in uh, Daniel we saw that there are kings and kingdoms that come and go, but there is one king who will be on his throne forever. And so we saw that um, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome would all come and go. And by implication, we know that Russia, China, United States, and Somalia will all come and go. But there will be one kingdom that will persist for all of time. That's the kingdom of God. And God is growing His kingdom through spreading His word. Now, when we turn to Colossians, what we'll see is because we're moving from somewhere around 500 B.C., to somewhere around 60 A.D., then Christ has come, He's died, He's rose again, and therefore, we now know with much greater specificity what God was talking about in Daniel. Because we come to see that this kingdom and this king is all about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. And so we know now, on this side of the cross and resurrection, that God's plan is centered on Christ, and Christ is that king who will rule and reign forever. And his kingdom is a kingdom of life and peace, joy and happiness, contentment and growth. And that it's not geographically bound, but it's spiritual in nature for now. But we'll see that when Christ returns, it will be physical in nature too. Daniel, you see, expanded our horizons. He helped us to see that there's this cosmic plan of God that's bigger, perhaps, than some of us have thought about before. But what Colossians is going to do is narrow our field of view into great detail to see exactly how that kingdom works. If if Daniel is a time-lapse video of all time, then Colossians is more like looking at a cell in a microscope. So we can see all the intricate details together. Some of you are going to hate it. Some of you are going to love it. And uh, in the fall, Lord willing, we're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes. It's dark and scary. And and, and some of you are going to love that, and others are going to hate it. All right? We'll just keep working through books together, learning and growing um, over time. One verse you might consider memorizing as we study Colossians together the next several months is Colossians 3, verse 1. It's here on the screens. I wonder if you'd read it with me. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What Colossians is going to tell us is that we find fulfillment in Christ and that in everyday life, progressively, we're to be seeking to look more and more and more at Christ which will make us more and more fulfilled in him and useful uh, in his world. Now, if you were with us for Daniel, um, you'll notice very quickly this morning, Colossians is super different. Uh, Daniel is, is a narrative book. It's filled with big, dramatic, apocalyptic visions. It's, it's incredible in that way. And so we had to span a, a, a lot of verses in order to cover that each Sunday. Colossians is is different. It's a letter. 
And so rather than looking at visions and bizarre symbols and uh, captivating stories, instead, uh, in Colossians, we're going to be looking at verbs and how clauses relate and considering nuance and particulars. It's, it's very, very different. And yet, God has great things to teach us here. And we're praying it'll be a tremendous encouragement uh, to you. All that I want to show you today is the first two verses to try to get us going and oriented in the book. And what we'll learn from these two verses is that in Christ, a believer is given a new identity and a new family. That's in Christ, a believer is given a new identity and a new family. And so look with me at the first verse. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to Timothy, our brother. Uh, in modern writing, the like three or four of us that still write actual letters, we put our name at the end of the letter. But in, in ancient times, you did the opposite. You started the letter by saying who wrote it. And so we see here right off the bat that this book was written by someone named Paul, and he was aided by his pastoral protege, a guy named Timothy. God had a message to share, and God worked through the apostle to share that message. Uh, for some of us, that's something that's still confusing to us. How could a person say something that God would say? And uh, what might be important here to point out is that this is what uh, theologians refer to as the dual authorship of Scripture. And all that means is that God could have chosen to just plop a book out of the sky. He had every right to do that. He could have done that. But God loves to use people to bring about his ends. And so in a variety of different ways, God worked through people so that they would accurately and in a trustworthy way communicate what he said. And in this case, God spoke through the Apostle Paul, so that we could hear from him. If you don't know who Paul is, you might later today look at Acts chapter 22. You'll find a great uh, personal story there from Paul about what God did in his life. It's an amazing story. Paul hated Christians, and his whole goal in life was to eradicate the church. And yet, God had a different plan and uh, overruled Paul's own plan. Anybody can say, that has happened to me too. <laughs> That's what God does. God has a great way of bringing about what he wants, and it's good and right and just and wonderful. Paul came to know the Lord, and then he became a leader, an apostle in the church. Now, verse 1 also will then tell us um, something of why he became that apostle. He became an apostle by the will of God. It wasn't his choice. He didn't uh, send in a resume. He didn't try out for the job. God set him apart for it. And therefore, he had a very special, unique position that no longer exists. Apostles were only in the first century. And their job was to get the church up off the ground and teach the gospel, and give us the authoritative word that we still hold to today. Now look at verse 2, would you? I'll just, look, I'll just read the first half. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ uh, who are at 
Colossae. There's a lot here. Uh, these first couple verses are, in all the letters, are verses that are easy just to jump past and feel like there's nothing here for us in terms of application. But this actually says a whole lot. You might think of it like uh, when, you go to, when you go to Disneyland and you pay like 50 ridiculous dollars to pan for gold. And you put a little pan down in a fake little stream and shake it up, and what happens? It's not rhetorical. So the, the, the rocks fall through, and then the gold remains. Uh, Colossians is giving us here, if we slow down and really consider what's said, some precious treasure. So I want to spend most of the rest of the time just looking at what's said here. There is priceless truth for the Christian. You see, let's first talk about the word saints. The, the Bible here refers to a group of people who are called saints. Now, uh, these saints aren't football players, and they are not people who are some kind of special class of super-Christian who are voted in by the Catholic hierarchy after they die. That's not what a saint is. According to God, a saint is an ordinary, everyday Christian. All Christians are saints. It, it means someone who's been made holy in their position by God. And that's an amazing thing to consider. It's a gift that God gives. It's a status from being unholy in your position before God to being holy before Him. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, everyday people who fail all the time can come to be people who God sees as right before Him, as pure, as clean, as holy. And that is not something that we can um, conjure up or cause to happen by our own initiative and our own good behavior. It happens purely as a gift from God. Colossians was written to saints. Colossians was also written to people who we see here are called brothers. Now, in this instance, a brothers means people. It means men and women. It's not referring to men and not women. It's both. It's like our word for humanity. And so what we are being told here is that all true Christians are part of a big, massive, weird, amazing spiritual family. You can see a tiny sample of that by looking around. We personify all of those adjectives pretty well. Beloved, uh, some of you never met your biological father. He was absent entirely. Some of you had incredibly cruel mothers. Some of you wanted a sibling, and you never got one. You never had the joy of riding in the car and getting smacked with french fries by your brother or sister. Uh, some of you will leave today and walk or drive or bike home to your apartment, and there will be nobody there. And what you want most in life is for there to be a spouse, and there's not one. This issue of family is a painful one in a broken world. 
And yet, in Christ, God gives a new family, a spiritual family. That's what the church is. The church is brothers and sisters in Christ. God gives us the family we always wanted but lacked the power to create and sustain. In the church, we're given another better shot at belonging. Because in the family of God, God is our Father, and everybody else who knows Jesus Christ are our brothers and sisters. And as family, we become profoundly bound up together with each other in such a way that we seek to help each other mature in Christ at every turn. And that doesn't happen in one single moment and in one single decision. It happens slowly over time as we learn to live this out in such a way that, that over time, it works like Chris's sorrows become our sorrows, and Chantel's joys become our joys. That's how God wants that to work. I don't know what yours are today, either one of you. Chris, do you have any sorrows? Great. <laughs> Chantel, do you have any joys? Okay. <laughs> if only you'd worn the mask, right? <laughs> so, messy and imperfect. Full of struggle and mistakes. The church is precious. Because it's where we learn how to live out what's already been made true about us by God. Friend, if you submit to Jesus, if he is your Lord and Savior, then God has made you a kin with all Christians everywhere. That's an astonishing thing. And that universal, universality of all Christians everywhere, that, that everywhereness of the church, is actually worked out in our experience in the local church. Because you see, you can't gather with all Christians everywhere. That's not possible. You, you can't know every Christian everywhere. You can't be in relationship with them and hold them accountable and pray for them. But you can do that in a particular place. And that's what God has given the local church to be. In this series, we're going to learn together how to uh, mature in the Lord in such a way that we can help each other see Jesus more and more clearly and grow up in Him together as brothers and sisters. Now, so much of what I've just been talking about is actually captured by two little words in that phrase I read. It's the two words, in Christ. Do you see them there? To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ who are at Colossae. Now, I want to I challenge you here a little bit. Uh, there are no two words of greater consequence. The words, in Christ. And yet, perhaps you haven't thought much about this of late. In the West, so not the, the West part of Phoenix or the West part of the U.S., but in the Western half of the world, we tend to think 
that identity is an individualistic project. So we tend to think we find who we are by looking within ourselves. And we find our sense of worth by what we have or what we look like or what we accomplish. And everything about our lives from the moment we are born until the moment we die the constant message we hear ringing in our ears from the world is that life is about what you get and do for yourself. It is impossible if you are from the West to escape this because it is literally everywhere. And I don't mean everywhere like out there in the world. I mean everywhere still in here. It's very hard to change the fundamental worldview of the culture that you're born into. And the problem with this is that it's not reality. It's a false project. It doesn't work. And yet, it's pervasive. And certainly in the amount of time I have lived, it's never been more explosive in, in our face than it is right now. While everyone bears moral responsibility for our personal choices, identity can't be earned. It's not a status you can attain on your own. And additionally, from God's perspective, um, identity is more corporate than it is individualistic. Let me see if I can explain. According to our Creator, every person who has ever lived is regarded by God as being either in Adam or in Christ. In Adam or in Christ. Such that when God looks at us, he treats us and sees us as either belonging to Adam or to Christ. Now, there are good things and difficult things about both. I promise you this is immensely practical. What it means that we're in Adam is that we're, we're born. We're physical human beings. And we're born in the image of God. We're made, all of us, Christian or non-Christian, we're made to represent something of who he is. And there are wonderful things about that. And it's what makes every person valuable regardless of what they have or where they were born or what they look like or how much they have or what they can accomplish. It is in the innate worth of a human being. If I could offend a few. It's what makes people far more important than animals. People are the only part of creation made in the image of God. It's why the homeless person you should see as in no way less significant than you. And yet, to be made in Adam is also to be made broken, fallen, bent away from God. And most people, even today, there are more people around the world who are still in Adam than in Christ. And that should weigh on our hearts heavy. 
Because you see, to be in Christ is to be regarded by God as being part of a new humanity, as people who have been born not physically again, but been reborn spiritually. And as people made anew in Christ, we are in that way whole, remade, forgiven, adopted into a new family, given freedom in Christ to obey God, and filled with the hope of heaven. That's what it means to be in Christ. Now, I'm belaboring this point because this is the pressing issue of our day. Literally everywhere we turn, we are being uh, given messages about the quest for identity. And society is consuming itself with false promises. It's spilling lies, telling us that if you just look within whatever you feel, if that's what you pursue, then you will find yourself happy and joyful. But it doesn't work. See, we, we all long to know who we are. Just like you don't have to tell yourself to breathe, you don't have to tell yourself to desire to have a sense of why life matters, of, of who you are, of where you're from, of why you matter, of what makes you you. God put that in us. And so if people don't look to God for that, then we'll look everywhere else. We have to. And in the West, we're being told that we find that not by looking without to things like family, but by looking within to what we feel. And this is denigrated to the point that we now think what we feel internally can trump everything else about us. And friends, it just doesn't work. Identity can't be achieved by looking within. It only comes as a gift. You see, identity, we're born into one. We didn't earn it. It was a gift. And we can be reborn into a new one. One we can't earn, that it is a gift. Identity is received, not achieved. And so everyone is either in Adam or in Christ. And what that means practically is that more than the color of your skin, more than the family of origin that you were born into, more than where you're from, more than what you accomplish, more than who you are attracted to sexually, more than how intelligent you are or what hard things have happened to you. The fundamental reality that shapes your sense of who you are is are you an Adam or are you in Christ? This is inescapable. Friend, if, um, if your inner life is a mess, it may be that you've got this sense of identity mixed up. And it is possible to be a legitimate, true Christian and still go through stretches of time in which you are in Christ and yet you revert back and live like you're in Adam. 
That was a miserable way to live. I hope in this series, some of the things that God gives us is a deeper and deeper sense of what it means to be in Christ, how great he is, how much we've been given by God because we're in Christ, and that we'll help each other become more and more and more convinced that God has made us new and is growing us up in him so that we'll learn to experience in everyday life that we're no longer broken, unforgiven, frail. No, we're, we're whole and alive and free in Christ. The only place to get a new and remade identity, one that's durable for this life and the next, is by being given it by God. And that comes through believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Christ lived the life we were to live. He died the death we deserved to die. He rose again in victory on our behalf. And if you believe him, you believe that, and you confess your sin, turning from sin, turning to him, then you're given that gift of being transferred from in Adam to a new creation, a new humanity. If this is new to you, you haven't ever heard this or thought much about it, then I want to encourage you later today to take a Bible and read the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It lays the foundation for this. And then call or text or email a Christian that you know and say, would you meet with me this week so we can talk this out? I got a bazillion questions. I want to learn more about what it would look like to live with the identity of being in Christ. Now, did you know so much, someone could talk so much about two words? <laughs> but there's more here. Look at the, the words that come after in Christ. It says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. The first recipients of this letter apparently were Christians who comprised a local church in a city called Colossae. Now, studying the letters in the New Testament, so that part of your Bible that's from Romans to Jude, those were, were all originally letters. And in almost every case, perhaps with one or two exceptions, all of them were written for particular circumstances and to address particular issues. Imagine that, a church having issues. It seems that the church in Colossae began well and then began having some issues. The Apostle Paul heard about them. He had never met them. And he wrote them in order to, on God's behalf, speak to them about how to continue to be fulfilled in Christ. When we get to the letters, really what you're, you're doing when you study them is something like Jeopardy. Any Jeopardy fans? Really, Hansley? That's weird to me. I am beyond baffled why anyone would like that, but to each their own, brother. What you have in Jeopardy is the answer, but you got to figure out the question. And in some ways, that's what we do when we study letters. We try to understand through piecing together the evidence and prayer and talking this out and listening to Christians who've gone before us, what might be the circumstances that prompted this? And it seems that this was the situation. It seems that the city of Colossae, which is located in Asia Minor, nobody lives there anymore, 
There's not even any ruins that have been excavated yet. In this tiny little city of Colossae, there were people who didn't know God. They'd never heard the gospel. And one of them traveled for some reason from Colossae to another city, a much more prominent and important city called Ephesus. And maybe he went there to buy some goods. We don't know. His name was Epaphras. And Epaphras, while he was in Ephesus, apparently heard Paul preaching the gospel. The Apostle Paul was there three years, and he taught consistently the good news of Jesus Christ. And apparently this man came to know Jesus, heard the gospel, was transferred from in Adam to in Christ, and began growing in the faith. And Paul sent him back home to Colossae with a passion to preach Christ in his city so that more people would come to know the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through that work, through Epaphras, a church was born. Brothers and sisters, there is in that little tiny story a powerful corrective for us. We tend to find ourselves, for a whole variety of reasons, bound up in small dreams and little faith. And yet Epaphras reminds us that that ought never to be. Because through one person's faithful witness, a whole church can be born. Isn't that remarkable? What might God do through you, Christian, as you faithfully share the gospel? It might be that you help an existing church like this one to be strengthened. It might be that someone who would never come through these doors, apart from a relationship with you, gets to hear about Jesus and eventually shows up. It might be that God sets it in your heart to go somewhere else and help start a brand new church in a place that there isn't one. That could be a formal role, like a missionary or a, prof, uh, a, a, a pastor. Um, I almost said prophet and apostle, and I was feeling very confused by that because I don't think that happens. But it might be also that God would just send you to, 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 to work at In-N-Out and to help the church in your off time. But friends, God works in a whole variety of means by setting desires in our heart as we seek to delight in him that helps existing churches be strengthened and grow and then from them flow out people who then go and bless other places. This is God's plan to reach the world for Christ. And it's working. And I want to encourage you today because there are things we struggle with as a church. But one of the things we're good at and I want to commend you for, is that you are not myopic in your understanding of what God's doing. You are happy to see people come here, grow up in Christ, and then be sent out to bless other places. You, you excel at that. And in some ways that's hard, because it feels like our church is um, standing at the parade and hugging people on the floats passing by. We just say goodbye to lots and lots and lots of people. Not because they're mad, but because they're only here a few years, and then the Lord sends them somewhere else. 
And yet this is a beautiful, wonderful ministry that the Lord has given us. In many ways, because of where we are located geographically. I just want to thank you for being a church that's aware that God brings Epaphrases and God sends Epaphrases. And maybe you'll be the next one. This is a great thing that the Lord does through us. Now, as we think about that city, we're going to learn over time much about the church as we study together in the book of Colossians. Whether you serve the Lord formally or informally, if you're in Christ, God has work for you to do. It's part of why he saved you. And few, yes, will stand and do what I'm doing right now, but it is no less significant to roll up your sleeves and serve behind the scenes in a way very few people will ever see. In fact, that's what most people do. And as we do the things that we do, we do them in God's strength for God's glory that more people might hear the good news and come to trust in Christ. Amen? And those who are already in Christ mature and grow up in Him. Now very quickly, look at the end of verse 2. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Beloved, grace is the currency of the kingdom of God. Grace is how you got in. Grace is how you went from in Adam to in Christ. And grace is still the air that you breathe every day. What makes Christianity so special, so utterly unique, is that it's a spiritual reality of grace, not works. And grace from God results in peace with God. And peace with God then makes it possible for us to be at peace with other people who are at peace with God. And that's fleshed out and lived in local churches. And sometimes we disappoint each other. Sometimes we hurt each other. Sometimes we sin against each other. Sometimes we have to go back and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Sometimes we fail spectacularly. And yet, if we've been given grace from God, then we're to give grace to each other because we've been put into a relationship of peace with one another. I encourage you this morning, if you're a Christian and you are aware of some way in which you are at odds with another brother or sister in Christ, that before you go to sleep tonight, you would seek to set that right. You would confess sin if you have some. You would receive that confession if you are the one on the receiving end of that call. That you would give deference and love and compassion because we've been put in Christ and are there part of a new humanity in which we don't treat each other like we used to in Adam, but in which we see each other as family to be loved, to be treasured, to bear with one another, forgive one another. Colossians is going to help us see how to do that. I'm so looking forward to going through it with you. Let's pray. God, we pray that 
you would bless what we have said today, that you'd speak to us and help us mature in you. We thank you for the family of God. We pray that any non-Christians here today would consider what's said and that you would speak to them, God, as they read your word. We pray that Christians, Lord, who remain people so in need of your ongoing grace and mercy and peace and love, would experientially find themselves warmed by your Spirit through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name.